have a question for you as we start this morning. It's rather a sobering question. But have you ever known someone who's left the faith? Who just stopped being a Christian? I'm not talking about somebody who just attended church occasionally. I'm talking about a, a, strong, a strong believer. It is, it is tragic when you see it happen. It is sad. And it can really be confusing to try to make sense of it. Try to figure out how you arrived at that place. And that is uh, the, the topic of this morning's passage. Some are departing the faith. And so if you're able, I'll ask that you go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word and we'll jump right in. This is God's Word. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you come again and be our helper? Would you help us to see the joy and the hope of the gospel even with such a sobering topic? Would you grant to us the eyes to see Christ as he's presented in the scriptures? And oh God, would you grant us the faith and the grace to cling tightly to him and to hold on to him? We pray all these things in His name and for His sake. Amen. Please be seated. So we'll jump right in. You've got an outline in your worship folder. I've given it three parts, departing, abstaining, and upholding. And so let's look at the first point. Departing. Verse 1, out of this passage, some will depart from the faith. And this is not just departing like you depart for the airport or you depart. This is, this is a very strong word here. Uh, this, is, this is a word of desertion. It's a word of abandonment. It's the word where we get our word apostasy from. These folks used to follow the Lord, but no longer. No longer. That's scary. And it really can be confusing. Right? What, what does this mean? Does it mean that somebody has lost their salvation? That they once were saved, but now they have lost that somehow? This is a question that tons of people have, that tons of people wrestle with. And so whether or not you can lose your salvation isn't the main point of this passage, but it is such a huge question that I just have to address it for a moment. And the witness of Scripture is very, very clear. Paul in Romans 8 tells us that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. And he lists a whole bunch of outrageous things that one might think possibly could, and he says none of them can. 
in his letter to the Philippians, Paul also says that he who began the work of salvation, oh, he will finish it. He will carry it to completion. And I'm so comforted by the words in John's Gospel that that speak of the Son losing none that the Father has given to Him. Right? All that the Father gives the Son, He hangs on to. He loses none. So we do believe that if in fact you have been saved, you can never lose that salvation. And so when something comes along in a passage like this that talks about some departing from the faith, I'd say that the best way to understand that is not in terms of losing salvation, but of having never been saved in the first place. Let me say that again. When we come across things like this, it's not a matter of losing salvation, but of not having had salvation in the first place that you could lose. You might have had something. There may have been an emotional experience. There may have been some some knowledge, some intellectual assent to who I believe Christ is. But whatever it was, it was not true saving faith in the Lord Jesus uh, a very helpful verse, one that's been very helpful to me in trying to understand this, um, is 1 John 2.19. Uh, we've got that on a slide for you, I believe. Uh, so John was talking to, to the Christians there. They were struggling with the same thing. And he was trying to help them understand that. And so he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Right, so, so the end is, is revealing. Right? If, if, if they departed from us, they never really were of us in the first place. They may have had something, but it was not true saving faith. Now that doesn't make it any less tragic. But I hope that gives you a way of of making sense of it according to the Scriptures. That we don't lose our salvation. Now, let's go back to the passage from today. That some will depart. right? And the Spirit has told us about it in advance. It's not a surprise. right? The Spirit expressly says, well, where, where exactly? How exactly is the Spirit saying this? I think the two most... Likely places that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God has said this is through God the Son and through the Apostle Paul. Uh, You could look if you wanted to. You don't have to turn there now to, to Matthew 24. Jesus talks about the fact that many will be led astray and they will fall away in these last times. Jesus knew it was going to happen. Paul himself... It's a passage that I've taken you to already in one of these sermons in 1 Timothy. But in Acts 20 when Paul is meeting with the elders at this very church that's in question, the church at Ephesus, he's giving them a warning about this very thing. Um, Verses 28 through 31, uh, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples 
after them, therefore be alert. So it's not a surprise. It's not a surprise to Paul. It's certainly not a surprise to God. But the bigger question is, how did this happen? How, how does this happen? And the end of verse 1 of our passage tells us how it happened in Ephesus. They were devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now you may ask yourself, I certainly ask myself, why in the world would anybody want to do something so foolish as that? And that's just it. See, this speaks to the nature of of what it is to fall away. Because no one wakes up one morning and says, hey, I want to believe a bunch of lies today. Right? I think I'm going to devote myself to the teaching of demons. I'm going to throw it all away. No, because think back to the folks that you've known. Right? I think back to the folks that I've known who've departed the faith. And it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't all of a sudden. It wasn't some spur-of-the-moment decision. It was slow. It was gradual. It was bit by bit. It was a little question here, a little doubt here, these things that go unresolved over time. See, very often it's a matter of drifting. Right? You're out in the water, in the boat, there's no anchor. Maybe you're so far out that you can't see land. And it's this imperceptible motion. And you don't realize how far you've drifted. And it's this drift that our enemy specializes in and capitalizes on. This movement that we don't even realize that that we've made. Now, did you pick up on the spiritual dynamic of this first verse? Go to the next slide, if you will. Look at this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. See, there's something going on on the surface that we can see, but there's also a reality that we can't see. It actually reminds me of something else that Paul said to these very Christians, actually, in his letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. Ephesians 6.12 We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual reality behind this that we don't often think about, but we need to because we have an enemy. Right? Satan was at work in the church at Ephesus. He was actively at work and he's got some help on the inside. And so we see that in verse 2. 
this, this departing happened through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, before I had always thought of this searing, this having a conscience that's seared, as of a conscience that through repeated disobedience, right, just couldn't sense any longer right from wrong. And, and I think that's probably at work here, but this searing word has, has something more to it. And some of our English translations pick up on that. If you've got the King James or the NIV or the New American Standard, you'll see that it says seared as if with a hot iron or a branding iron. Right, so think about in terms of cattle. Right, you put your brand on a on cattle, or in, or in ancient times that these readers would have been familiar with, how how criminals are sometimes seared with a hot iron, or runaway slaves, or defeated soldiers. And so it's also possible to understand this seared conscience as a conscience that's been branded. By Satan. As a mark of his ownership, as a mark of these folks are doing his bidding. That, my friends, is scary stuff. And you think about this warning that Paul gave to those elders back when the church was relatively healthy. And he said, Be warned, it's coming. And I don't know if they just didn't believe him, and that's why they let their guard down, but here it is. Satan's at work. He's got help on the inside. Heaven forbid that we would allow that to happen here. All right, so what exactly were these liars with the seared consciences? What were they teaching that was leading to the departing? And so lots of times false teaching will lead down one of, of two paths. Right? It'll either lead down the path of throwing off the law. Live however you want. It doesn't matter. God's a God of love. He'll understand. All right, so there's the first path of false teaching that throws off the law. There's also false teaching that takes the law and elevates it to a place that it was never intended and, and adds to it and misapplies it. Blows it way out of its purpose and proportion. And, it, and it's the second path that the false teachers at Ephesus have gone down. And so on to the second point of abstaining. What Paul is doing here is he's giving us a little more insight into what he first said way back at the beginning of, of chapter 1 when he was charging Timothy to correct the situation here where there are teachers teaching a different doctrine. So we're seeing a little bit more now what exactly this different doctrine involved and included. And you'll notice that it's not a huge departure from the faith, right? It's not as if they're denying the resurrection or the virgin birth. It's just some little tweaking. It's just some different emphases which actually 
fits hand in glove with that drift. These minor little adjustments, additions, fit hand in glove with that drift. So these teachers are saying that you shouldn't get married, and they're saying that you shouldn't eat certain foods, right? And that just struck me as a little odd. Why these two things? What is that's just odd. And so Paul is going to explain why this teaching is wrong. But here's the really big question that I think we need to ask ourselves and be thinking about in, in regard to this passage. is why would these teachings, these odd little teachings about not getting married and not eating certain food, why would these teachings actually lead people to depart the faith? That's the big question that I want you to consider. Because I can see how they would lead people to just be wrong about their doctrine. But why would an abstinence from marriage and refraining from eating certain foods, why would that cause people to, to throw it all away and to stop being Christians altogether? I don't, I don't get that at the outset. So, so think about that. Because basically what we've got here is asceticism, right? It's this self-disciplined abstaining from things for religious purposes, right? It's, it's what some think you have to do to be really godly, right? If you're going to be really spiritual, if you're going to be closer to God, right? You've got you've to deny, you've got to suppress. And so what has been picked are marriage and food, right? Two of the most basic Appetites and desires that God created us with. Neither of which is wrong. Both of which God has given us God-honoring and glorifying ways to fulfill. And and so this is what Paul gets at in verses 4 and 5. So he pretty easily and quickly refutes this false teaching. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Right? So God declared all of his creation good. Marriage is a good part of his creation in no small part because of the beautiful picture that it portrays of Christ in the church. Much less how it is, it is an outlet to satisfy God-given desires and appetites. It's a beautiful picture of, of what he's going to do between Christ and the church. So why would anybody want to forbid that? And what about the food? Right? What are these teachers trying to do? And we're not really sure what the restriction was. And it doesn't matter. It's not important what it was. Because by this point, Jesus had already made very clear, and you can look it up later in Mark 7 if you want to read that passage, that it's not what goes in you that makes you unclean but it's what comes out of you, right? It's what comes out of the heart. That's what defiles you. That's what makes you unclean. Acts 10 is another place where you can look, where Peter has this great vision of this this sheet being let down from heaven, and it's got all these unclean foods on it. And the voice from heaven comes and says, Rise, kill and eat, right? And Peter, being the good little Jewish boy that he had been raised to be, said, "Uh Uh-uh, no way. Uh Uh-uh, I've never... But the voice from heaven again says, don't you call common what I've made clean.
Now, let's not miss the significance of this. I'm, I'm all the time trying to tell you, all right, it, it's, it's not just a bunch of instructions and rules, right? It's a, it's a story. So let's plug this back in to, to the context of, of story and what's going on here. Because so, we've had some valid food restrictions in the Bible, right? Some bona fide, all right, we had one in the garden, just one, right? Don't eat from this particular tree, right? So there's a, a real valid food restriction. Didn't work out so well. Um, then later there are a lot more food restrictions. So when God decides again to dwell with his people by means of the tabernacle, right? he's, he's going to, to be in their midst and they're going to be in his presence. There's a lot more uh, food restrictions that come along. Some of you were in the, the adult Sunday school class recently and we, we trudged our way through Leviticus, right? It was actually, I thought, pretty interesting. I thought. I hope you all did too. Right? Because we saw how these food restrictions served a really useful and beautiful purpose. Right? Deeply ingraining in God's people the holiness and the cleanness that's required to be in His presence. And the fact that by nature we are unclean. And that's a bit of a problem when you're in the presence of a holy God. And so there were these food restrictions. And why food? Well, what do you do at least three times a day? Sit down to a meal. You've got to think about what you're eating. You're reminded at least three times every day of the Lord's holiness and, and my lack of holiness and my need. And so this got deeply ingrained over and over and over and over and over again. God's holy. I'm not. And so I've, I've got these rules that I can follow that He's graciously given me, in fact, to, to maintain this relationship and this fellowship and His presence. And, not only that, but I've also got these sacrifices that I can make for when I'm not in a state of cleanness. And so there's a very good reason that none of these Christians at Ephesus should ever have been following any food restrictions. And that's because our once-for-all sacrifice has come. And He's paid for the stuff that really makes us unclean. Our once and for all sacrifice has come. He's paid for what makes us unclean. Not the foods that we eat, but what's in our hearts. Our selfishness, our gossip, our greed, our materialism, our pride... So Christ has come and he's, he's borne the shame and the wrath and the penalty for all of these things in order to make us clean. And so Paul's argument for, for why we don't need to abstain from certain foods, there in verse 3 you see a little part of it, and in verse 5 you also see, right, we're to receive with thanksgiving because we believe and we know the truth. These things have now been made holy by the Word. See, it's the Gospel that these things have been redeemed. What was once don't touch and don't taste has now been redeemed. But these false teachers want to take a step backward. And Paul's not having it. And that leads us to our third and final point of upholding. Now, we got a little out of order because of wanting to get to those officer qualifications at a better time. 
So we need to try to put this back in order and back in context. So we're at the beginning of chapter 4, right? And what comes before the beginning of chapter 4 is the end of chapter 3, okay? Where Paul is describing the church and what the church is supposed to be. And one of the things that he describes is that the church is supposed to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is supposed to be upholding the truth of the gospel. The church is supposed to be keeping the main thing the main thing. And so if we are tempted to think that a marriage restriction or some food restrictions aren't that big of a deal, let me tell you, it really is. It really is really is. Because here's what the false teachers are saying. They're saying, if you want to really be godly, if you want to really be okay with God, you've got to suppress your appetites. Because godliness is going to come from deep within inside of you. And so that calls into question the finished work of Christ the all-sufficiency of what He's done, that it was enough and it was finished and it was complete. And so what the false teachers are doing is exceedingly dangerous because it takes our eyes off of what Christ has finished and completed for us and puts it on what we do for Christ instead. Don't miss that. That is just so stinking important. Where is your focus as a Christian? Here's what you need to ask. You need to ask it of yourselves. You You need to ask it of the teaching that you take in, the stuff that you read. Right? What is the focus? Is it on what you do for Christ? Or is it on what Christ has done for you? one of which is true gospel Christianity and the other is not. And our enemy wants us focused on one of these instead of the other. He wants our eyes on self. Because he knows that if we put our eyes on what Christ has finished and completed for us, Game over. Every temptation loses its power. Everything as far as his scheming and his planning is concerned falls apart when our eyes are on the finished work of Christ. And so now let's go back to that important question that I wanted you to think about. Why in the world would silly false teaching like forbidding marriage and abstaining from food, why would that actually lead people to depart from the faith? Well, let's say you gave into that. Let's say you gave into the teaching. You said, All right, I'm going to suppress my appetite. I think I've got what it takes. All right. Well, very likely, you're going to end up in one of two places. And if you were here last week, you've already seen these two places. They're coming from that confession of sin that we used again today. All right? If you're hunkering down, If you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you're going to make this suppressing your appetites thing work, you're going to end up in one of two places that will actually make it very likely that you'll depart from the faith. 
Right? And so, so the first of which is, is being anxious and discouraged and depressed. Right? And so like, like I described last week, those of us who are a little less self-disciplined maybe than others, those of us who are more honest and realistic about our abilities and about our, and about our performance, right? we give this thing a try, we say, oh, all right, I'm going to suppress my appetites. Right? And it just doesn't ever work. Right? No matter how hard we try, no, many how to- no matter how many times we try, we just can't. We have failed again and again and again. And we end up in a place of, of anxiety or discouragement or depression and it can be so deep that it takes us right out of the game. Can't do it. Depart. So that's the one place this might lead us. The other place that this might lead us, if we do happen to be of the temperament that we are a little more self-disciplined and a little more determined and, well, we've just got a little bit more grit, quite honestly, we'll be arrogant. And we'll be arrogant because we're delusional. All right, we've got a little overestimation of our abilities and some underestimation of God's holiness and His standard. And it leads us to the place where we say, hey, we're doing great. Got this thing by the tail. Actually, the more that I think about it, I'm doing God a solid favor by being on His team. He could really use more of me than these guys. Lightweights. Now, what would lead these arrogant folks to depart from the faith? You've got to connect these dots. This is so important. What would lead these folks who think they've got this all figured out, that they've got it all under control, that God is so pleased, what would lead these folks to depart from the faith? You see, those who are, who are able for a time to suppress their appetites for the Lord, those who can perform and can obey for the Lord, begin to expect things from the Lord. These folks, the more they do for the Lord... And begin to expect things from the Lord. Don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. Leave these words in the context of, of all that I've said this morning. There can be, through a life of obedience off of our own effort, of trying to please the Lord through the law, of trying to change our own hearts and change our own lives, like that prayer of confession said, where we land in a very dangerous place. Where we land in a place of thinking, well, certainly, 
I'll be rewarded for my allegiance. Surely my work won't go unnoticed. Of course my life is going to go a certain way because of all I've done for the Lord. Surely I'll be blessed and and highly favored or whatever the lingo might be. But then the doctor's office calls back. Then the attorney serves you with papers or your kid gets arrested or you lose your job. And all of a sudden you find yourself saying, Lord, how could you? How could you let this happen to me? After all I've done for you. And if you're, if you're familiar with the, the parable of the prodigal son, we become the older brother. This was the older brother who had always obeyed and had never left. And who becomes indignant at the injustice of it all. See, our our eyes have come off of what Christ has done for us and they've been placed squarely on what we're doing for Christ. And now we just might be ready to depart from the faith and to throw it all away. See, our enemy wants us either hopeless or way too confident. And either one is deadly because it's not the gospel. Because at the end of the day, it leaves us not trusting and completely resting in what He has finished and completed. Which is the truth of the Gospel that the church must uphold at every turn. And so we will uphold that at Trinity. We will. We will uphold it in the teaching and in the preaching. And we're going to uphold it in just a moment when we come to the table. We're going to uphold the beautiful truth of this glorious gospel for needy sinners and what Christ has finished for us being the chief end and not what we do for Christ. Let's pray together as we begin to prepare our hearts for that. Oh God, don't let us drift. Oh Lord, make this church a pillar and a buttress of the truth so that her members can cling tightly to the gospel in truth and cling tightly to what the Lord Jesus has finished and completed. And yes, there will be obedience that comes out of that but it will not be the obedience that creates a right relationship or sustains a right relationship. It will be this tenacious, scandalous, amazing grace of the Gospel that holds us to the end. Bring us, Father, by the power of Your Spirit into a place where we are trusting and resting in that Gospel alone. We pray in Christ's name for His sake. Amen. Please stand so we can sing.